Well, welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles, brethren. We are finally here. We've been looking forward to this feast for many months now. And we're here together. We're here to learn more about the truth of God, to catch a glimpse, hopefully a clearer glimpse, into the millennium, the thousand-year time of peace and prosperity that you and I have been called to be a part of, to rule and reign together with Jesus Christ. Brethren, have you ever been in a situation where you wanted to heal someone? What kind of condition or disease or illness did you want to heal? Have you ever wanted to be healed but were not healed for whatever reasons God chose? Have you ever known someone who was deaf, who was blind, who had a deformity, perhaps had a missing limb due to an accident. Perhaps they had a severe medical condition, cancer, even a severe mental health disability. Have you ever wished that you could fix or heal areas of God's creation that have been extremely polluted or destroyed? Areas like the Gulf of Mexico after the Deepwater Horizon spill. Areas like Chernobyl, an area that was destroyed some 30 years ago because of a nuclear meltdown, which, by the way, is acting up again and will probably melt down again in the near future. Brethren, have you ever wanted to give poverty-stricken people a quiet, peaceful home to live in? Nice, clean, soft, comfortable clothing an abundance of food, perhaps even a simple hot bath. Brethren, you and I are called by God to rule and reign in the kingdom for a thousand years and beyond. One of the very things that you and I are called to do and will be called upon to do at the very start of the millennium, before a whole lot of other things are done, is to heal a great many people. And we'll have to heal them very likely before we begin any major re-education process. Brethren, today I want to speak to you about a process, the process, of healing. And I want to help you more clearly see and understand both the scope of what we'll need to do and who will need to be healed. Brethren, if you're looking for a title for today's sermon, I've entitled it, called to heal the world. You know, as we begin the millennium, there are going to be some two to three billion people who live through the tribulation over on into the kingdom of God. If you run the numbers and the percentages in Revelation 6 and 9, those are the numbers you come up with. We're talking about a great deal of people as we go back through the prophecies in the major prophets and in the minor prophets, and in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the cursings, we, be able, we become able to look into the future and to see the kinds of sufferings and sorrow that people are going to have to live through who go through the great tribulation in the day of the Lord. It's going to be a very difficult time. It's going to be a heart-rending time. Many will have survived horrific experiences including things like near starvation, watching people they love die 
and suffer, be beaten, be raped. It's going to be a terrible time. People will have lived through concentration camp-like experiences, as Dr. Meredith talked about in his opening night message. They will have lived in extreme conditions, experienced nuclear fallout and nuclear radiation, and the list goes on. Brethren, what kind of an impact will these events that these people experience during the tribulation and the day of the Lord, what kind of an impact will they have on their, on their physical health? Imagine the deformities. Imagine the people being maimed and hurt. Imagine the mental health and the emotional impact that these events will have upon people. Human beings made in the very image of God. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is something that has become part of our acting vocabulary in recent years because of the wars that have been going on and the conflicts all around the world. PTSD will set in worse than ever before in human history as the day of the Lord comes to an end and Christ returns. Brethren, we're going to need to work with people in these kinds of situations who've been through this kind of trauma. There will be many diverse and extreme injuries and medical conditions as people come through the tribulation and the day of the Lord, and they're going to need immediate attention. Again, many more will have witnessed atrocities that have left them mentally and emotionally devastated and, frankly, even incapacitated. Brethren, these are people that we are called to teach in the kingdom of God. Dr. Meredith, again, described in more detail what some of these people will have gone through and what they'll look like and be like. We're called to teach these people. We're called to re-educate these people. And as we begin the millennium, we're going to have many, many people with many, many problems. Frankly, and realistically, brethren, before we can begin to effectively educate and teach these 21st century Holocaust survivors the way of God, before we can begin to show them the way, to teach them the commandments, to teach them to self-evaluate, to examine themselves and learn to change and make changes in their way of thinking and acting. Before we can begin to do that, brethren, many of these people will need to be physically and emotionally healed. Years ago, the American psychologist Abraham Maslow did a decent amount of research. In fact, he, he focused his entire career on trying to explain why people behave the way they behave. He demonstrated, initially through some studies with rats, and then much of his research moved into human being research, and psychology has continued to follow. He began to find out what makes people do what they do. What are the limitations of human beings? What needs have to be met for human beings to be able to self-actualize. That's his term. What he meant was what basic needs need to be met in human beings before they're able to learn on a higher level, before they're able to really contemplate powerful ideas, before they're able to look at issues and contemplate issues regarding morality and social construction and the things that God's Word teaches us about, knowing right from wrong and desiring to do right, no matter what. What Maslow learned, what psychology has come to understand, is that people cannot focus on these high-level 
thinking areas unless their basic needs are met first. And in fact, he developed this concept called his hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What it is, and many of you may be familiar with this, so I'll recall, bring it to recollection for you. Others that it's new for, I'll try and describe. Maslow designed a triangle. And what he put at the top of the triangle was these powerful intellectual concepts, this idea of self-actualization, an idea that we would talk about as becoming more like God, frankly, developing the mind and, and the ability to think and reason and focus on high-level things like morality, like becoming perfect. So Maslow set those concepts at the, at the top end of the pyramid. But at the base of the pyramid, the foundation, as we study his hierarchy of needs, we see basic things like food and water and shelter needs and safety needs. Once those basic needs are met, then people can elevate and, and move to the next level where they become concerned about belonging, fitting into a family and being loved. Frankly, people who are starving don't care about being loved, do they? They want to know where their next meal is coming from. People who are not feeling safe, they feel like they could lose their life anytime soon. They're not concerned about how they can live a better life. They're concerned about being safe and not dying. Maslow's hierarchy goes on to talk about esteem needs, a need for self-confidence, a need to, to achieve. But basically, his, his hierarchy gives us a way of thinking about the millennium. The people that come through the millennium are going to need some basic needs met first. These are going to be people who in many cases have been starved and starving. They're starving to death. People who have incredible emotional scars. They have fears beyond what most of us can even understand. Fears that consume them. They can't go on and they can't think about anything else because they're so afraid, because they're so shell-shocked, because of all that they've been through. They don't feel safe. They don't have a place to live. They may not have clothing. Many of you older brethren probably have seen footage of the Jews that were released from the concentration camps at the end of World War II. Emaciated individuals, missing arms and limbs, no clothes. Brethren, someone like that can't think about becoming like God. They have to have basic needs met first. They need food. They need water. They need shelter. They need to be put out of the pain that they're in because they've got a missing limb or because they've got a terrible disease. They need to be put out of the emotional pain. They need to be healed physically and emotionally before we, as God's people, can jump in and begin refocusing and re-educating them and teaching them the ways of God. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 1, verse 7. If you turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We find a familiar scripture, a familiar passage, one that I think most of us have read before, but one that we need to keep in mind as we start the sermon today. It's a passage that talks about the power of God's Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll start reading here in verse 7. It says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. God's spirit is not a spirit of fear. What is it a spirit of? Power. Power. 
The power that created the universe. The power that created you and me and designed us virtually perfectly. The power that will change the world. The power that will heal the world. God has given us a spirit of power and of love. God's love. That active, outgoing love. A love that's willing to sacrifice oneself for those who one is serving. Power of It's a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. A sound mind, a safe mind. Brethren, ultimately when it comes down to it, what we're looking at is God's Holy Spirit is a spirit of healing. A spirit that has the capacity to heal and to heal the world. As we begin the the body of the sermon today, let's look at some miracles that have been done in the past that God did primarily through Jesus Christ, his son, when he was on the earth, but that he also did with others. This will begin to give us a glimpse into the power that we will have in God's kingdom. You might recall um, in Dr. Meredith's opening comments at the beginning of the feast, he talked about how we will be there in the kingdom, in the millennium, to bless the people of the world. We as spiritual members of the family of God, full spirit beings, will be there to bless the people of the world. And one of the ways we will begin to bless them at the very beginning of the millennium is with healing. Matthew chapter 8. Let's look at a few of the miracles that Jesus Christ was able to perform. And in fact, as we do this, I want to break down the miracles that we cover in... uh, levels of healing we'll start out with some what i would call simple healings now frankly there's probably no such thing as a simple healing in some ways in other ways everything's simple to god but from our physical human perspective these are um, simpler than some of the profound ones like bringing someone back from death matthew chapter 8 and verse 1 what do we see here what is the first miracle that we read about here in matthew 8 when he had come down from the mountain, remember the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount had just been given. He had spent time, these last three chapters, illustrating to his disciples what the kingdom of God would be like, the kind of character God was looking for in people who he wanted to be in his kingdom. So he comes down from the Mount of Olives where he's given this sermon, this, this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And when he had come down, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came. And worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now think about leprosy for a minute. It's a disease we still have today. It's a disease that at that time really was not curable. It's a disease that causes the skin on the human body to rot, to change colors, to stink. It can be painful. This is a nasty disease. And lepers were put out of the normal population because leprosy is contagious in part, but people didn't want people like that around them. So the leper comes to Christ and says, if it's your will, make me clean. Verse 3, Jesus put out his hand, he touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priests and offer a gift, the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Christ healed the leper person with a physical disease, a physical infectious disease. And Christ said, be cleansed. 
All he did was say two words, and the person was healed because of the power of God and the will of God. Relatively simple healing, you might say. Let's look at another even simpler one in some ways. Skip down to verse 14, and we pick up the story here. Jesus Christ had come into Peter's house, uh, Matthew 8, 14, and he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So this individual that some claim was the celibate Pope Peter obviously was married. He had a wife, and his wife had a mother. So Peter, or Christ goes to Peter's mother-in-law. He sees Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick with a fever. We don't know exactly how bad this fever was. It could have been something simple. Most of us have had a fever, haven't we? How does a fever make us feel? Well, God has designed a fever to make us stop so the body can heal itself <clears throat> and fix itself. A fever makes us weak in most cases. It takes our energy away from us. We feel just like sleeping. Um, it can involve pain. Christ sees Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick with a fever. Now, he could have left her. If this was a flu, for example, uh, he could have left her and probably in you know, three, four, five days, it would have been gone. It would have cleared up on its own. Yet we see that nothing is too unimportant for God to heal from this example as well. What does he do? He reaches down. He sees this woman in pain. She's suffering. And he touches her hand. Doesn't say anything. Touches her hand. And the fever left her. Boom. Gone. And she arose and she served them. She felt better. She got up and she served them. Probably food. Small healing in some ways. She just had a fever. Felt lousy. Christ touches her, makes the fever go away. Most of us who've had fevers, what does it feel like when your fever finally breaks, as we say? It finally goes away. You're tired, probably exhausted, but, oh, you feel, as we say sometimes, I feel 100% better. It might not be all better yet, but it feels so much better. Christ was merciful. Let's look now at couple examples of perhaps some moderately powerful healings. Again, I use those terms loosely. <clears throat> we can't really define healings in terms of powerful and not so powerful. Everything's powerful. But again, from a human perspective, you know, God healed a leper with an infectious disease. Jesus Christ did. He healed someone with a fever. Here's some more extreme healings here. Matthew chapter 20, if you turn there with me. Matthew chapter 20, and we'll start reading in verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, obviously they couldn't see him. When they heard he was passing by, they cried out, Have mercy on us, O, son, o Lord, son of David. And the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. Why? Here's these two blind guys. They, 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 they want something from everyone. They want to be healed, and everybody knows it. And You know, this is, this is the Christ. Let's leave him alone. You, you're blind people. You don't need to bother him. You know how society works. You know how human nature works, putting people down. But they cried out all the more. They're told to be quiet, yet they make even more noise to Jesus. Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. 
verse 32, Jesus stood still and he called to them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? He wasn't just going to heal them. They had to ask. They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. Two blind men, they could not see. Most of us have never been blind before. We don't know what it's like to not have any vision at all. Some of you have been blind. Some of you are blind. And you know what it's like. And you know how badly you want that sight back. Most of us have known people, do know people, who are blind. What did Christ do? He had compassion. He touched their eyes. And immediately, their eyes received sight and they followed him. Pretty exciting. Healing the blind of a completely debilitating, in many ways, situation, illness. Let's go to Acts chapter 3. You're familiar with this. Acts chapter 3. We see the disciples now, after Christ was resurrected and and taken off back to the throne of God. We see the example here, verse 1. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John went together to the temple, the hour of prayer in the ninth hour, a certain man lame from his mother's womb. And if we look over to Acts 4.22, we see that this man was 40 years old. He couldn't walk. He never could walk. He was born unable to walk. Problems with his legs and his ankles. He could never walk. Everybody knew this. For 40 years, anyone who came in contact with him knew and understood that he could not walk. He had to be carried. And he was daily at the gate of the temple. And he asked alms. He asked for donations from the people who came to the temple to give and to worship. And in fact, you go travel around the world. And in many of the churches, at the doors of many of the churches, especially the Catholic churches, you see people on the steps going into the churches asking for handouts, asking for donations. They're sick. They're hurt. They're poor. They need help. This is what this man was doing. So he asked for money. In verse 6, Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have. I I don't have money for you. But what I do have I give to you. Oh, brethren, can you imagine this? Do you want this kind of power of the Holy Spirit? What did he say to the man? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Verse 7, he took him by the right hand. He lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. They never had had it before. Immediately they received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Brethren, what must this have looked like? They walk in with this guy who's been lame for 40 years. People who come to the temple every day have seen him over and over and over and over again. People who come to Jerusalem for the feast just once a year or twice a year for the spring holy days too. Knew this man. They knew who he was. He was a fixture. And he starts leaping and walking and excited as he goes down the aisle with them. What a neat healing. The the disciples, the apostles, were able to do here. A little more profound. This guy's 
for 40 years, never been able to walk, and boom, he can walk. We won't continue with that story. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, though. Let's skip over. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord on Solomon's porch here outside the temple. <clears throat> Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. The believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out in the streets. They laid them in beds and couches. Why? that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them, and a multitude gathered surrounding the cities, um, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were healed. Peter's shadow, Peter's shadow, as he walked by, was healing the people. Powerful miracle? Yes. But there are even more powerful miracles. What's interesting, too, as we go through here, and I will reference you to this. I encourage you to go back and, and, and review it on your own. When we see these healings, what we see in most cases is that the healing precipitated the later preaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's truth. The healing came first for several reasons. One, it got people's attention, and they're willing to listen. But two... People were healed of their hurt, and then they were ready to listen, and they could listen, something they might not have been able to do because of the injuries, the sicknesses that they had. Let's go to John chapter 11 for an even more profound miracle. John chapter 11, you're familiar with the death, the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, we'll start in verse 28, John 11, 28, and um, when she said these things, she went away secretly and called Mary, her sister, this is Martha, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. And Jesus, verse 30, had not yet come into the town, but he was in a place where Martha had met him. So she came out to meet him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, comforting her when they saw that Mary arose quickly, went out and followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Their brother Lazarus had just died, someone who Jesus Christ was very close to. And just you may remember that Jesus Christ was told he was dying, and he waited. He purposefully waited for Lazarus to die so that he would be dead when he came to resurrect him. Christ also knew at this point that God would resurrect Lazarus. He knew that God would resurrect Lazarus. Verse 33, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? Christ hurt because he saw the suffering. Verse 38, Jesus groaning with him and himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Of course, Martha says, you know, Christ, he's been in there three days. He's going to stink. You don't want to do this. But they did, verse 41, take away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you. He says this out loud for the benefit of the people. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, 
Lazarus, come forth. Come out, Lazarus. This dead man who's been in there for three days and three nights and a little bit more. And he who stood, excuse me, and he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths. He's all wrapped up like a mummy. And his face was wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said, loose him. <laughs> Let him out of this stuff. And we realize that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Powerful miracle that Christ performed. Job 38.17, I'll just reference that. God is interfacing with Job. And he asked Job the question, have the gates of death been revealed to you? The gates of death were revealed to Jesus Christ. The gates of death will be revealed to his servants as well at some point. John 14.12. John 14.12. Look at the promise that Jesus Christ gives his disciples and he gives to all of us here. As we think about miracles, <clears throat> John 14, 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Christ prophesied that even greater miracles than he did while he was on the earth will be done by his people, by the saints. Brethren, the time is fully coming as we head into the future. Revelation 20, verse 7. Revelation 20 and verse 7. <clears throat> one of my favorite scriptures. And it's one that we could take a half an hour and just talk about and expound upon. I encourage you to meditate on this scripture while you're at the feast, thinking about what it really means and what it's going to look like in the millennium when this scripture is fulfilled or filled to the full, at least as full as it can be at that point in time. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. Now, when the thousand years... Excuse me. Revelation 21, verse 7. Revelation 21, verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Brethren, we're called to be part of the family of God, as you well know. We're called to be changed, as we talked about at the Feast of Trumpets, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first as full spiritual members of the family of God, and those who are living will follow them. We will be the family of God. We will marry Jesus Christ, our elder brother. He will become the husband to the church, to the body. We will be full children of God, spiritual children. And because of that, and because of God's name that will be placed on us, we will inherit all things, all that is God's. What belongs to God? We can look around the earth. We can look at the universe. And we can consider, too, that part of what is God's is his power. And we're called to inherit the power of God, and certainly the mind of God as well. <clears throat> so we've reviewed a few scriptures here, a few scriptures, and there are dozens and dozens of scriptures that talk about healings of all different kinds and raising from the dead. 
from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the, the Bible is permeated with these scriptures. We've looked at healings in the past. What about healings in the future, brethren? What about these blessings that we are called to give to humankind? Micah chapter 4. Brethren, I want to take the remainder of the sermon. And I want to focus on how we are called to heal. Who we are called to heal. The ways we will heal. And we'll spend a great amount of time in Micah and Isaiah for the remainder of the sermon. <clears throat> Let's go to Micah chapter 4. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. And give you an idea of where it falls right after Jonah. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. And when we read about latter days, that term, that phrase being used in the major prophets and the minor prophets, sometimes it refers to the time of the end prior to Christ's return. In many cases, the latter days is referring to a time after the return of Christ, the millennium <clears throat> and beyond. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted, lifted up above all the hills, and people shall flow unto it. The term mountain used in Scripture is often used, as many of you know, as representative of a kingdom. So we see that the kingdom of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord's house, shall be exalted, lifted up, set above all of the mountains, all of the kingdoms of the earth. We also know from other scriptures that literally Christ's temple on the earth will be above all the mountains because all the mountains will be lower than that location. But the mountain of the Lord's house will be exalted above all the hills. People will flow unto it. Many nations will come and say, <clears throat> come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's go up to God's mountain, to God's kingdom, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between many peoples. This is a reiteration of Isaiah 2. And rebuke uh, strong nations far off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. You get a glimpse even further into the millennium. And other speakers here at the feast will, will detail these scriptures even more. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But individuals, people are going to come together. And they're going to say, come on, gang. Come on, family. Let's go to Jerusalem so we can be taught God's ways. But as we reviewed at the beginning of the sermon, people who are lame cannot walk to Jerusalem. People who are blind can't see to go. People who are deaf can't go and be taught. Scripture tells us that the people in the millennium, their eyes will see their teachers. You can't see your teachers if you're blind. You can't hear your teachers if you're deaf. If you're in pain, if you're hungry and starving, if you're naked, you're not going to say, come on, let's go to Jerusalem and be taught. Think about it. These are people who are well, who are able to do this, who are able to hit that self-actualization area in Maslow's Pyramid. They're well enough. They have all of their basic needs met well enough so that they can get to the level of saying, okay, now I'm ready to focus on changing me 
into him, changing my way of thinking, changing my way of living. I want him to change who I am. They've got their basic needs met enough to be able to do that. <clears throat> Verse 4, everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. We're talking about a time when needs have been met. Food is abundant. You've got grapevines. You've got fig trees. You've got property. You've got a house. Human beings have these things. Remember, we're not going to be human beings at this time. We're going to be spirit beings who are involved in teaching these people. Continuing in, in verse 4, No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. No one will make them afraid. No more fear. Let's look at another passage here. Briefly, we're going to skip gears and, and talk about the creation, Romans chapter 8. If you would turn there with me. <clears throat> Romans 8. And we'll start reading in verse 19. Actually, let's, let's start in verse 18. Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So the difficulties in life today, our trials and our struggles the, the, the hard times that we have, that all humanity has, aren't worthy to be compared to what shall be when we're changed. It will be incredible. And God begins to, through Paul, give us a little clearer glimpse here as he talks about the healing of not human beings so much, but the healing of the creation. <clears throat> Verse 19 for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. For what? For the revealing of the children of God. Depending on the translation, it may say sons of God. The word means children. Creation is waiting for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly. Creation didn't say, okay, come destroy me. Wipe out species. Ruin the oceans kill the lakes and the rivers. <clears throat> Creation was subject in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into a glorious liberty of the children of God. The children of God are going to free creation. The earth, the rivers, the oceans, the mountains, the plants, the animals. Remember, just before Christ returns, one of the bold judgments that God pours out kills every living creature in the sea. They're gone. Talk about mass extinction. Yet we read later on in the scriptures talking about the kingdom of God. Zephaniah and elsewhere, Micah, that the nets of the fishermen are drying on the rocks, a vision into the kingdom, which means they're fish in the sea again. So God's going to replenish. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. <clears throat> Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, 
And he goes on. But we see here that creation is hurting. Creation is suffering, isn't it? How is creation suffering, brethren? Think about it. According to some sources, over 800 species of animals have been wiped out, become extinct in the last 100 years. 800 species. They've gone the way of the proverbial dodo bird, one of those species. We as human beings are wiping out species. Yes, some people over-publicize this. Yet at the same time, many people under-publicize this. Many people don't care. <clears throat> the rhinoceros in Africa is being wiped out. Do you know why? Some of you do. Because their horns are worth 10000 U.S. dollars an ounce. $10,000 an ounce. And so they're selling these horns to people in Southeast Asia who are superstitious and believe that if they grate a little bit of this rhino horn into their food or in their drink, it's going to cure all kinds of diseases. It's crazy. It's deception by the God of this world. So we're wiping out a species that's close to extinction because of man's superstitions, false pagan religion, who pagan religionists who turn to a substance rather than the creator. Rhino horn ground up in your orange juice or your mango juice. Instead of turning to the creator, the one who suffered for us so we can be healed by his stripes. Satan's obviously behind this. Creation is groaning in travail. We are killing our oceans. The Exxon Valdez, <clears throat> an Exxon supertanker that grounded off the coast of Alaska some 30 years ago, spilled, I can't remember how many um, millions of gallons of crude oil into the ocean some 30 years ago. And the crude oil is still oozing up onto the beaches in Alaska. Of course, you've seen the pictures, what happens to plants and animals when they get covered with this stuff. It kills them. There are toxins in crude oil because of the refining process, because of the chemicals that are in it. God designed <laughs> oil to be separate from the rest of the environment, didn't he? That's why he put it far under the earth and not on the surface in most places. What else are we doing to destroy? We know that acid rain is caused because of the pollution we put up into the air. And in fact, it falls on lakes and rivers and changes the pH in the lakes and rivers and it kills fish. Some of the worst acid rain in the United States is on the West Coast. How does it get there? Because of the factories in China. And it carries all the way across the Pacific Ocean and drenches the, actually the mountains in Oregon, Washington, California. And then you get this acid rain runoff. Why? Because people want to make money and do things on the cheap and not take care of the creation. Something that God commanded Adam and Eve to do long ago when he put them in the garden. And he said, I want you to dress and to keep this garden. I want you to be good stewards of the creation that I've placed you in. Today we're more concerned about money than taking care of what God's blessed us with. 
Creation is groaning in travail and in agony. And we're called to help heal creation. Let's look at some more scriptures here that relate. Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35. As we begin to think about the millennium, what it's going to look like and what needs to be healed. Brethren, again, we're talking about a couple billion people living through the tribulation in the day of the Lord and into the millennium. They're going to need to be put somewhere. If you start giving people their own wine, grape vines, not just to eat grapes, but to produce wine with. You know wine's going to be consumed in the kingdom of God. Christ said so. I won't drink of this cup with you again until I drink of it with you in the kingdom, in my kingdom. People are going to need space for grape vines. Fig trees get big. We're not talking about a little tiny patch of land. We're talking about people living from the land. <clears throat> not grocery stores on every street corner. People don't need those. They can produce much of their own. Let's go to Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the wasteland. This is a future prophecy. Talking about the kingdom. Talking about the millennium. The wilderness and the wasteland. Wasteland is desert. Shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. Some of you live or have lived near deserts. What grows in deserts? Virtually nothing. Some scrub plants. Now, you get some monsoons that hit the desert once in a while, and yeah, you'll have plants, even flowers pop up for a day or two until the sun comes out and dries them up and kills them again. We're talking about a land being replenished and a land being changed. Deserts will blossom like a rose. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord the excellency of our God. Deserts blossoming like a rose. Any idea, brethren? Do you have any idea how much of the earth's surface is covered with desert? It's about a third. About a third of the earth's surface is desert. What we know is many of these deserts are expanding. They're growing. What will it be like when many of these areas are lush, again, and full and can handle populations. Let's look again at another scripture, Isaiah 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Another glimpse, piece of the vision into the kingdom of God. Isaiah 43 and verse 18. Isaiah 43, 18. Do you not remember the former things? Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, and the beast of the field will honor me. God's going to put rivers in the desert, not rivers of sand like you see now, not empty wadis where there are flash floods once in a while when the monsoons hit. No, these are rivers that flow and are full. You've got to change the topography. You've got to change the flora for that to be able to happen. Remember, as we may have reviewed, you may have reviewed, at the end of the Feast of Trumpets and the bowl judgments, God is going to move every mountain 
out of place. He's going to change the oceans. The islands are going to change. God's going to change the topography, which will change the climate. You lower mountains, it forces deserts to go away as you study it. What happens with mountains is you get a rain shadow effect. And on the side that the wind blows from, you wind up with deserts on the side particularly of the biggest mountains. You lower the mountains, you begin to get rid of the rain shadow effect. Rain shadow meaning there is no rain. It's desert. You begin to shrink the deserts when you lower the mountains. It's pretty amazing the, what we've come to understand. But God says, I'm going to put rivers in the deserts, which will allow there to be lush surroundings, which will allow the deserts to blossom like a rose. What an exciting time this will be. The jackals, excuse me, the beasts of the field will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches, they're going to be excited because of what they have. Because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. God is going to bless the earth with this, with what is coming. Brethren, how much of the earth is going to be radioactive? after the Great Tribulation, after the World War three that will happen? How much of the land will be unusable because of this? You know, it's been some 30 years since Chernobyl, and you still can't live in that town. You can go in and visit for an hour or two, but you have to carry a Geiger counter with you because the levels of radiation are so high, and you have to leave because you can't be overexposed to that radiation. Brethren, what types of illnesses or conditions do you want to heal now? What kind of illnesses or conditions do you want to heal in the kingdom of God? Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 35. And we'll read about this a little bit more. Isaiah 35, verse 3. Here's the command of God. And who is it to? What beings will have the capacity to heal when he says do it? Isaiah 35, 2. Or excuse me, verse 3. He says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Strengthen the weak hands and the feeble knees. What diseases are you thinking of when you read this passage, when you hear of this? Maybe arthritis? Maybe degenerative joint diseases? Maybe degenerative muscle conditions like muscular dystrophy. Maybe individuals who have had strokes, who have weakness in their hands or in their feet or in their knees. Maybe some of the natural processes of aging. Can you begin to see, brethren, how awesome it's going to be, especially at the beginning of the millennium when God says, do it. Go forth, heal these people, and teach them my way. In many cases, these people aren't going to be willing to listen or even able to listen to the teaching of God's way until the process of healing begins. It's really an awesome time that we're called to see here. Let's read verse 4. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With a recompense God, he will come and save you. 
say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong. Is that all we're going to say? It's just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't be afraid. No, we're going to have to help them. We're going to have to help them feel safe. But in many cases, we're going to have to heal their minds because these people have lived in fear for three and a half years. And in some cases, depending on what part of the world they've come from, they've lived in fear for all their life, for decades. Brethren, think about it. There are some 200,000 children displaced in Syria right now because of the fighting, the essentially civil war that's going on there between the rebels and the government. 200,000 children, not to mention women, not to mention husbands, fathers, grandparents, adults. These are kids that are growing up living in fear. They're hearing rockets over their heads all the time. They're hearing machine gun fire all around them. They can't walk outside without ducking their head. Brethren, what would it be like to live that way? Always fearful, always wondering, you know, my dad's going to work today or my dad's going out to look for food. Will he come back? Will my mother come back? That's an awful way for children to have to live. God says it's not going to be anymore. The fearful hearted, it will go away. We're going to have to heal those hearts so they're not fearful as well. Healing things like what? Anxiety disorders. Of all the mental illnesses, anxiety disorders, worry disorders, account for at least a quarter of all mental illness. So if you look at people who are mentally ill, at least a quarter of them are ill because of worry and fear. And in many cases, it's immobilizing fear. They're so worried, they're so fearful, they can't operate in a healthy way in their life. Let's look at verse 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Brethren, how many aspects of society have to be altered today to accommodate people with vision and hearing impairment? How many things have to be changed? That won't have to happen in the kingdom of God. Those who have suffered with vision and hearing problems will suffer no more. Because the eyes of the blind will be healed. I remember sitting with a church member years ago at the feast. Wonderful man. My wife asked him a question at lunch as he was eating spaghetti. You ever watch a blind person eat spaghetti? It's a challenge for them. When do you know when the end of the, no the noodle is coming up? But she asked him a question. She said, what do you look forward to most in the kingdom? And this is a man who had been blind from birth. He was in his late 40s or early 50s probably at that time. He said, I look forward to seeing clouds. I look forward to seeing clouds. He said, you know, people describe them. They describe them as looking like soft cotton. <laughs> he said, I can feel cotton, but I know that's not what a cloud feels like. I have no idea what it looks like. Seeing clouds. Seeing a sunset. Seeing a baby animal, newborn, with its mother. Seeing a little child holding the hand of a grandparent. Brethren, the eyes of the blind will see. 
They will see things they've never seen before. And they'll see their teachers. The ears of the deaf will be open. People who've not been able to hear for years, who maybe never have heard the voice of their own children or loved ones, will hear. People have never heard the sound of wind in the trees. People have never heard roaring thunder. Maybe they felt it, but never heard it. What will it be like, brethren? How do you teach a deaf person to know the way of God if they can't read? It's a hard thing, but we're going to work with people who've been healed and we'll be able to teach them. Verse 7, the parched ground. Verse 6, then the lame will leap like deer. The lame will leap like deer. Brethren, how excited would you be if you got your legs back and you never had them useful before? Or you had had them blown off in a landmine or cut off because of an accident. And you got them back. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you're experiencing it now. The lame shall leap like a deer so excited because they've been healed. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb shall sing. Dr. Meredith opened with this on the opening night. To sing. Something they've never been able to do before. To hear the words of their own voice. The water shall burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool. The thirsty land, springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be grass and reeds and rushes. There shall be a highway there and a road, and it should be called the highway of holiness. What a time. Verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. Sorrow and sighing, gone. Brethren, how many sorrowful people have you known in your life? How many do you know now? What would it be like to just reach into their heart and take it away and then begin to give them something incredible to fill that space? No more sorrow and crying for the ransom of the Lord shall return. Brethren, what transformation must take place in a person's mind and in their life for them to sing after they've experienced the horrors of the tribulation. Can you imagine that? After they've experienced those horrors, what will it take to make them sing and cry tears of joy, peace in their hearts, contentment, lack of worry, joy, hope for the future? No more pain. Healthy bodies. Isaiah chapter 51. Turn there with me if you would. Isaiah 51, verse 11. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. It's a reiteration here. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? And the son of man who will be made like grass 
and you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You feared continually every day. These people, brethren, will have feared continually every day. They need to be shown another way and they need to be healed. Will we heal them completely? Perhaps not. Perhaps we'll leave a remnant there that they need to work on. But brethren, if you've known people as I have who have been so paralyzed by fear and worry that they can't even begin to think to move forward, you understand what God's talking about here. Verse 15, I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand. God's hand will be on these people protecting them, giving them that comfort that comes from an all-powerful Father in heaven who is watching over them always. No more need to fear. Ezekiel 34. <clears throat> Turn back to Ezekiel with me. <clears throat> Ezekiel 34. Let's read in verse 16. He says, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what is sick. But I will destroy the fat and strong and feed them in judgment. God says, I'm going to bind up what's broken. What was broken? The broken hearted, the broken bodies. I'm going to heal what was sick. Isaiah 61. <clears throat> Isaiah 61. Go back to the book of Isaiah. God gave Isaiah, didn't he? Some incredible vision into the millennium and a world that will be so different. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to what? To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Heal the brokenhearted. Brethren, that's what we're called to do, especially at the beginning of the millennium. When a heart is broken, you can't work with someone very well. Some of you have known people with broken hearts. Some of you had them in the past. And if you don't anymore, it's only because they've been, you've been healed and you know that. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Brethren, who are the brokenhearted? Who will they be? What does it mean to be brokenhearted? What types of events result? What types of situations result in the breaking of a heart? Scripture reveals how people will experience in the millennium, excuse me, in the tribulation, Cannibalism, having their families separated and taken, watching children or parents be tormented, tortured, and taken away, executed, being mentally and physically broken under conditions that Hitler's war gave us a glimpse into. Healing the brokenhearted, brethren, is healing people's minds and their hearts. Let's come back to Maslow and his hierarchy of needs for just a minute. 
<clears throat> Finally, brethren, people in the millennium will be teachable. They will be teachable when we help meet their basic, their primary needs. People won't be able to really focus fully on God's way of life, on overcoming. They won't care about it until their pain ceases, until they're healed in mind and healed in body. Brethren, when those powerful needs, human needs that God created us to have, when those powerful needs are finally met, then people will care about and desire to live God's way and become more like Him. After we've shown them love and compassion, after we've healed their bodies and their hearts, provided them with very good food, a wonderful place to live, safety, nice and comfortable clothing, then they will begin to trust us. Then they will begin to understand where our healing power comes from. And they'll want to learn more. Brethren, how many people in the world today are suffering from mental, emotional, and physical impairments? How many people in the world today experience trauma in these, re in these areas? How many people will be sick, brethren, injured, mentally and emotionally scarred after living through the atrocities of the Great Tribulation? Brethren, it's going to get so bad, as you know, people will actually pray for the rocks to fall on and kill them, and they won't. Brethren, what will the people look like? And what will they feel like after coming through the tribulation? Again, think about images of World War II and the survivors of the Holocaust. Think about pictures you've seen of people suffering around the world today. Do you now see more deeply the need for healing the world? What type of illnesses, I'll ask you again, do you desire to heal? Do you see the life-changing power of healing, brethren? The societal-changing power of healing? Do you yearn to put people who have always lived in poverty, in filth and in squalor, perhaps just in a cardboard box, among tens of thousands who do the same, do you long to put them? Think about this, please. Do you yearn to put them in a soft bed of their own with clean, hot, and cold running water? You know, most of the people around the world have never taken a hot bath or shower. How long do you, how much do you yearn to give them this? Giving them plenty of food and a wide variety of it. My wife's grandmother muses about the kingdom. One of her favorite foods is ice cream. And she says one of the things she'd like to do in the kingdom is share ice cream with people who've never had it before. What a vision. What a, what a gift in some ways. Do you long to give these people maybe a room, a separate room for each of their children in the house that you give them? Fruit trees in the garden. Peace. Quiet and cleanliness instead of filth. Brethren, can you see the important need for healing that will exist before the people who live into the millennium begin to desire God and His way of life and begin to desire to stop sinning? How will people react, brethren, when they see us? God's children, representatives of the King 
of kings and the Lord of lords, coming to them with deep love and mercy and concern, full of the healing power of God. How will they look at us? Let's turn for a final scripture to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. How will we be seen? The children of God coming in the image of God and the likeness of God, potentially shining in our power and glory that's been given to us with the power of God in our hand to heal the world, to change the world, to give to people who've never had anything, to love them, to hold them, to let them know it'll be okay. And this time, there will be peace. How are they going to look at us? Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. Here's the perspective they're going to have. How beautiful upon the mountains, not are the faces, not are the bodies, not are the shadows, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him or her who brings good news, who proclaims peace, and they mean it, and it will happen who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Not a person, not a false prophet, not a beast. Not envious leaders who care only about themselves. What will they say? As they prostrate before the saints of the Most High, how beautiful are their feet because their feet carry the ones who can change the world, because their feet carry the ones who will heal them. Brethren, this evening, this afternoon, this evening, I'd like to give you a little bit of homework. I'd like you to go and pay special attention to those around you and those that you see in this life who need to be healed. Some of them will be your brethren here at the feast. Others will be individuals you come in contact with as you leave this afternoon. And you go out to eat or you go out to different events because we're not out of the world yet. We're called to be separate at the feast, but we still have to function in it. Brethren, in your discussions, in your conversations with each other, I encourage you, talk about parents with your children. Talk about healing the world and what it will be like, what it will feel like to heal people of illnesses and to heal their minds. What will that be like? How will it make us feel? Will only the lame be jumping for joy? Or might we be as well? Talk about what you desire to give to the people of the world as you set them up in a new life that is God-directed. Brethren, let the concept, I encourage you, I urge you, let the concept of healing the world, healing the earth, become more real to you than ever before. Meditate on the concept. Discuss the time when the earth will no longer experience sorrow and crying and pain. Brethren, I encourage you, savor the thoughts that we've talked about today. Meditate on them. Dwell on them. Let them motivate you to yearn even more for the establishment of the kingdom of God. A time when the millennium will start and as we work with the Father to start that millennium, we will begin to heal the world.